I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Welcome to another episode of the Executives Exchange. In this episode, we have the honor of featuring Allison Robinson, the esteemed founder and CEO of The Mom Project. From her experience at Procter & Gamble, Allison discovered a profound passion for empowering mothers. Get inspired as Allison unveils the origins of The Mom Project, a venture dedicated to supporting and providing opportunities for mothers and their families. Hi, Allison. I'm so glad you're here. It's so good to be here, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Well, let's get into it. I want to start from the beginning, though, get to know you a little bit more. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Edgewood, Kentucky, Margaret. Um, Where's Edgewood? Edgewood is a just kind of small town suburb of Cincinnati. Um, So just about 20 minutes outside of the city. Um, so I grew up there, I'm the youngest, um, have an older brother and sister. Um, and my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, so started working in his um, business in real estate when I was like eight, just kind of pounding the phone. So always knew I wanted to build something of my own someday. From watching him build his business? Yeah, he like, and um, it had so much meaning for him. He helped people, you know, often get their first house. Like often they were yeah. military veterans, like, and he would help them get get loans. And just like, it was, it was really incredible. He loved what he did so much and his passion and his tenacity um, and seeing him and getting to be a part of that with him um, really left such a lasting impression on me. Yeah. Did you ever work in the business? Yeah. I mean, I was just telling someone the other day, um, like Chris, like we had these things and I don't even know if they still exist. Probably not. They're crisscrosses. And um, they basically have kind of phone numbers based on a street and all the, the house numbers. And he would just have me call like every house, like going down the street, like seeing if people wanted to sell their home. And if so, like if they wanted Villa Drilly which was the name of his company, um, to help them get their house sold. So it really taught me from a pretty young age to, uh, just, just, you know, we're all selling something, right? (laughs) You could not do that now. Like I grew up doing market research and it was the same thing. Like you would just dial houses based on census tracts and can't really do that anymore. I know it's so different. Get them different ways. Yep. Yep. So what was your first real job? My first real job was at Outback Steakhouse. Um, my sister was living in La Crosse, Wisconsin with her husband. Um, and so I, I joined them for the summer and I lied about my age. <laughs> my application, I was 15, but you had to be 16 to work. So um, I was 15, just shy of 16 when I became a hostess there. That's amazing. What did you learn being a hostess at Outback that you still carry with you today? So much. Um, I always say like everyone should spend some time in like hospitality. For sure. Um, Like it just taught me a lot of kind of life skills on how to, how to understand people. Like at the end of the day, customer service is so key and um, you know, helping people who are frustrated 
because they'd been waiting in line for their dinner for like two and a half hours. I'm wondering why somebody who had called ahead could waltz right in and get seated. Like it just taught me a lot about um, navigating conflict and customer service. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy that job. It, and I was always a pretty shy kid. And I think it really helped kind of get me out of my shell. Yeah. That's really great. I mean, so much of business is customer service and it is hard to teach. Like you're in service to your employees, you're in service to your investors, you're in service to your customers and treating it with that mindset goes really far, but no one, no one teaches you that. You don't take a class in customer service in college. So true. You've got to learn it. You've got to learn it by doing totally. Yeah. So then I think your first big corporate job was Procter & Gamble. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so what were you doing there? So I was in sales. Um, so I got that opportunity, I guess, when I was going into the summer of my junior year. Um, so I was about 20, 19, 20, 19, I believe. Um, so I started there in sales. Um, I moved on my own to a small town called Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, the biggest like big city is Harrisburg, um, Pennsylvania. I've been to Harrisburg. Yes. So it's, it's outside Harrisburg. And, um, I worked there on a retail account for PNG, um, giant Eagle, um, helping kind of grow PNG sheriff shelf. Um, kind of the first year was really learning the PNG business. They kind of bring you in early wanting to teach you with the hopes that you stay. For a while. Um, so learned a lot about, you know, what we called DPSM, which was display pricing, shelving, merchandising, and kind of like the basic, like kind of the foundational things that you need to know about retail and how these retailers make money and, and kind of learning about um, corporate culture, you know, like it, when yeah. you're that, you're just kind of getting yourself your feet wet and um, how to talk the lingo and whatnot. But that was a really fun summer for me. Um I learned a lot and I really enjoyed the culture at PNG. I had a lot of incredible mentors who took me under their wing and really taught me how to sell. Um, and it was a really, really good experience for me to understand kind of how, how to sell to bigger companies. Um, and I've really carried that with me um, through all kind of aspects of my, my career to date. Yeah. And then, so how far did you go at PNG? What was your last job there? So I did a second internship, um, and then I moved to Charlotte, up to Boston for a while. Um, but my heart was really more on kind of the consumer brand side. I had learned, I felt like I'd learned a lot about how to sell at PNG, um, but I I wanted to get closer to the end consumer. Um, and so I had an opportunity to move back to Cincinnati, um, which was my hometown and, yeah. um, work on the Pampers brand. So when I left PNG, I was leading Pampers innovation for North America, um, which specifically looked like spending a lot of time in households with moms, really seeing how consumer behavior was changing and how we could deliver better product experiences and better marketing brand experiences for her. That's um, so much of what I used to do. So I was at a market research firm and we did a lot of that, like in-home ethnography and understanding customer needs. And um, our company was, it's like 75 years old. It started What's a long the name ago. of it? <clears throat> so 
was the name of it? It was Leo Shapiro and Associates. Okay. Based in but, Chicago? Um, in Chicago. But the okay. owner, his son, so this was 60 years ago, uh, the other company, Kimberly Clark, not to be named, um, we had all this <laughs> absorbent hospital gown material. Like, what else can we do with this? And it was part of the innovation group. And they yes. were working on disposable diapers. And so the owner's son with, was using all the test diapers, like in their home and crawling around the office. And it's like oh this great gosh. claim to fame that this uh, market research firm president was like the test baby for Huggies. <laughs> that is hysterical. Oh my gosh. It's such a rite of passage working in CPG when like your friends come over and they're like, why do you have all of these boxes of like product samples? That's so fun. Well, the world turns. We're actually now, our space in Chicago was a former office of Kimberly Clark. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Their marketing team had a, had built out a really nice space there. Yeah. So, oh, that's amazing. That's so Can't fun. leave CPG. <laughs> Can't leave. Okay, so what gave you the push to leave and start the mom project? So, I mean, I had been working on the Pampers brand, and you know, so like the experience of mom, even prior to becoming a mom, was like so deeply personal to me. And um, I share with my team, you know, having spent that time with so many of these women, I built a lot of conviction around this belief that moms will achieve the impossible to build a better future for their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really just like hit me when I became a mom myself. Um, my son um, totally changed my world in the most like wonderful of ways. Um, and I had kind of my own experience navigating parental leave. Um, at the time there was no kind of formal paid leave policy so I decided to take some unpaid leave, um, time away from P&G that had gotten extended. Um, and, and while I had those extra couple of months at home with my son, Asher, I read that over 40% of American women leave the workforce after having yep. children. And um, I don't know, I just like I envision like all these incredible millions of women who had so much to offer and so many talents. And I believe that if we could build a way for them to find access to great opportunities that could meet her on her terms, like that could just unlock so much strength in the economy that we'd yet to capture. Um, So it was really personal. And I think, you know, backed by sort of like this compelling market stat that this could be a really, really big business as well is doing I know. good. This world was not built for them, right? Well, for us, because we're both working moms, but it was built for a very different type of worker in a different situation. And yeah. it's amazing to me that we still have not transformed the nature of work and how we work and the structure of work. And I know you're, you're doing your part to disrupt this whole thing. We need more people working on it too. I always think back to this Melinda Gates quote, Margaret, which she she so eloquently said, we're sending our daughters into a workplace designed for our fathers. Exactly. And I carry that with me every day. Right. Exactly. And, you know, you could argue it wasn't even great for fathers, though, either. Right. I think there's so much that fathers, I think especially in the pandemic, as they were home more, you hear a lot of dads talking about how transformative that was for them and how they are now changing how they work and what they do. Because, like, I didn't realize what I was missing. I just was 
it's amazing. doing what I was socialized to do. And that's, and like, there was this whole home life that I was missing out on and I don't want to miss out on it anymore. It's so true. It's really, it's changing. And I, what I believe is in such an amazing way, like my husband, like probably does more of like the caregiving load than I do. And I think that is really, um, from a societal perspective, like that is really changing in such a great way. A lot of our customers are dads and they're like, look, I see what has to kind of work for me and my, my partner to both like make it to work and like get our kids to school. And there's just like a greater sense of empathy yeah. um, from not just the women that we speak with um, in these large companies, but, but also the men, which I think is really exciting. I know for sure. So did you go back at all after your leave or did you leave your job? Um, no, I didn't end up going back. I ended up sort of building this as I was still technically on maternity leave. And, uh, I'll never forget when we launched the business, um, the, the journalist at the Chicago Tribune who covered workplace Phoebe, or sorry, not Phoebe. Um, what was the woman's name? But it, the the story got picked up on the cover of the Chicago Tribune. And at that point, it was like, there was no going back to PNG. Like, this is happening. It was, was out there. there. <laughs> it was out there. I think I got summoned to HR at PNG. Like, what are we doing here? Um, and so I had to kind of formally give my my resignation, which was bittersweet because I PNG was really all that I knew. And I was so grateful for the experiences that I had there. But I knew this was just too important to not focus on with everything that I had. Yeah. What was the most difficult part for you in making that decision and starting your own company? You know, I think I just like, I, I had no idea, like really like the path forward, you know, I never, I came from a corporate environment that was rich in resources and funding and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that. And so kind of from day one, once I made that leap, it was maybe more like on the quick succession of making that of, okay, well, if I want to grow this business, I need capital. I need to be able to hire a team. I need to be able to grow out our technology and infrastructure um, to be able to kind of meet these exciting things our customers are saying that they want to see from the mom project. So I, I went in probably a bit more foolish than I should have. Um, I don't think I better. Yeah, I don't, that you didn't know I don't know if I would have taken the leap had I known sort of everything that was going to come after at the yeah, time right. as a brand new mom. Um, and it was just a really kind of heart-based decision. Um, so. Yeah, it seems like it's so purpose-driven for you. Like you were born to do this, right? Everything was coming together. You were working on moms and then you became a mom and just so immersed in the challenges of moms and felt like this was yours to do. I mean, it clearly is yours to do. And you are perfectly suited for this and you're doing such a great job. Oh, I appreciate that, Margaret. Well, I mean, it's certainly not all been perfect. I just try to, you know, learn and and grow. Um, it's a first time founder. Like I have a brother-in-law who's now, uh, who's been starting his own company and, and many other friends who are female founders. And it's just been exciting to kind of share some of the learnings along the way. I didn't know many people in my right. sphere who had, who had built companies. And there's just like a lot that you learn along the way. So yeah, um, yeah great. I'm, gr- I'm grateful for the opportunity. I, uh, 
it's incredible the team that we've built and to get to work on this and have such kind of meaningful conversations, whether it be with policymakers, people leading companies um, to, to make this mission a real reality. Um, been a lot of hard work, but um, I can never imagine something that I could have done that would feel so deeply and personally meaningful for me. Right. So let's dig into it a little more because we were talking generally about it's not built for working moms. There are all these challenges. So what specifically are you solving for with the mom project? Yeah. So our mission statement is really to unlock economic opportunity for moms. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we see that, you know, about 40% of American women at some point will step back in their career to focus on family. And we know that there's a large number of reasons why that happens. Um, for some, it's the high cost of childcare. And when you're looking at your take-home earnings, barely breaking even with a cost to put your kid into daycare, um, that math often just doesn't shake out for somebody um, to continue working. Or, you know, we're one of two developed countries that don't offer paid family leave. Many women are still in the healing process when they have to get back to work. Yep. Or unsupportive managers who couldn't understand why you have to step away to nurse for your child, right? Like all of these kind of factors drive women out of the workforce prematurely. Um, and so what we, our aim at the Mom Project is to help these women find incredible opportunities that make them fulfilled um, and get them generating income. I mean, we kind of our North Star is economic impact. So last year we connected our moms with nearly half a billion in economic impact. Um, and that was through both job connections. Um, and I think the cool thing about our marketplace is that we've built, seeing that moms come to us from so many stages and walks of life We've been really intentional to offer so many kind of different work opportunities, ranging from really short-term projects to mom being able to join a company on their payroll as an executive. Um, and then in, in kind of the peak of the pandemic, we also launched a non-for-profit, um, which is called Rise. And we saw that... Um, Kind of in, on the onset of the pandemic, when there were a lot of layoffs, women of color were most disproportionately impacted by those, um, mm -hmm. being more represented in, in sectors like retail, hospitality. And we knew that we had to do more to kind of leverage this ecosystem that we had built of women, of customers, of educators to kind of do more to accelerate pathways for these women to find more meaningful economic opportunity. Um, so through Rise, um, we've connected thousands of women and helped them maybe leave hourly jobs where they were working in retail and get upskilled into fast growing fields like cybersecurity, UX design, um, where you know they get great benefits, maybe can work remotely in a six figure salary. Um, and I think our my vision for what the mom project can continue to do to not only expand the number of women that we reach through our jobs marketplace, our upskilling, or new um, emerging ways of working. It's all kind of aimed at this continuous pursuit of helping her find um, opportunities that really meet her where she is. Right. Well, part of why you're so successful and 
the way it has to work is you also have to make the business case. So this can't just be good for moms. It's good for business. And that's how you're going to get business to really adopt it. And so what is that business case for them? I love this question. So I really think about it um, twofold. One, it's just a massive segment of the workforce, right? Like it drives me crazy when mom, when people say moms are niche. And so I have this thing when, if I'm sometimes giving a talk, I say, raise your hand if you have a mom, right? And it like really opens people's eyes to this is not a niche. 86% of women become moms by age 44. So it is like the vast majority of the female workforce that we're solving for through the mom project. Um, And the second is um, there is such a compelling kind of downstream impact to business when you hire moms. And we have a research arm at the mom project. It's called Work Labs. It's led by our fabulous um, behavioral scientist, Dr. Pam Cohen. Um, And we do a lot of survey surveys and research with customers that hire through the mom project. And what they report is when they hire through the mom project versus other talent acquisition channels, that the quality of our talent is much higher. It's leading to longer retention, loyalty, um, and productivity, I think is a really compelling business case that we've been able to prove out um, with customers reporting kind of 3x improvement in productivity of the moms that they've hired through the mom project versus And why is that? Well, um, we like to say moms get shit done, right? Like I think moms bring this stakeholder mindset to the business. So whether they're joining a small business to work on finance or they're joining a large corporation on a project, they're bringing this stakeholder mindset. Their time is precious and they're highly efficient um, at getting the work done. Um, So we know in a world where companies are being asked to do more with less, um, moms are, there's a really strong value equation to bringing moms in, into their workforce. Yeah. I mean, every employer is looking for people to get shit done. <laughs> like exactly. Productivity is a huge conversation right now. And so to know that you have people that will be highly effective and productive and the ROI on that. It's so true. And I mean, I think like such a cool proof point for me is like some of these small businesses, like their first hire was the mom project through the mom project. And then also every subsequent hire and they're building their teams through our community. And I think like that tells you everything you need to know about the power um, of mom. And so, yeah, we continue to kind of think through ways. And um, Wendy is our incredible head of brand and PR and comms of how working with a mom project is not only doing good, but such a strong strong, um, driver of bottom line performance. And I think we we can't think of enough innovative ways to tell that story. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Sure. Audio equipment for the executives exchange podcast is provided by sure incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. I want to talk about family leave policies a little bit. I'm surprised to hear that P&G's was not that great because they're always touted as this you know, wonderful company with great values and a great place to work. So who is doing it 
well? What are some of the companies that you think are really getting family leave right? Yeah. And I will say, um, thanks to a lot of kind of brilliant and bold women um, at P&G who are the privilege of working with um, shortly after my leave, um, they had introduced an incredible policy, new policy. I believe it's now 26 weeks and oh, that's great. consider surrogacy, adoption benefits, like built a really robust. Um, so, um, and then I think in terms of who's getting it right, um, you know, I think historically sort of consulting and technology has led in terms of um, the largest leave policies um, where it's pretty common to see upwards of 26 weeks. Um, that's probably on, on really kind of the high end of what we see. Um, one of the examples I love I love pointing out is our customer Etsy, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. It's a grand favorite of moms on our community who use it to, you know, get everything from costumes to home decor. And they have a 26 week paid leave policy. And one of the things that we found was that as companies were investing in these great policies, what they hadn't necessarily factored in was they were just expecting their employees who were not up, who were still in the business to kind of pick up that work. Yeah, right which leads to some resentment, right? When you're being asked to pick up that, that additional work for 26 weeks while also wanting your, your, you know, colleague going on leave to have a really um, great experience at home with their growing family. And so we stood up a program with Etsy where we basically provide backfill coverage um, for those moms and dads who are on leave um, so that, um, you know, that work can get done with somebody who can, come in to the business, hit the ground running, and then transition out um, as the mom or dad is returning. And we've just seen this as such a win-win. And Etsy will then, you know, take these people who have already gotten to know their business and put them on other leaves across the business. And it's just this really incredible policy of really supporting the employees inside and out. Um, So I always kind of love to shine an example on what we're doing with them. That's, that's a model we've been able to replicate with other large companies. But what's so frustrating about this is that it really depends on who you happen to work for, right? So if you work for a large, well-resourced company, chances are pretty good that you're going to have a great leave policy. You work for a small startup, you know, mid-sized business, which we know is still the majority of employers in this country. Right. You may not. And um, I'm just so disappointed that it got taken out of the infrastructure bill. I was so hopeful because it was really in there until like the very end. And then they decided, no, it, you know, paid leave is not infrastructure, but it is. And until we fix that, like, it's just so frustrating because we're a small, right? Like we're a nonprofit. And I think we have a quite generous leave policy for an organization our size, but we can't do what these larger organizations do. We just don't. We don't have the resources. It's so true. Mark. And as you said, I mean, there's millions and millions of small businesses who yes. make up the great majority of employers in the U.S. Um, and it's not because they don't want to offer these great policies. In fact, we've done some work partnering with the Department of Labor, the Women's Bureau there to host um, kind of town hall sessions with small business owners. And have seen some kind of creative solutions around how they could fund it. Right. Um, and 
I share your disappointment that to see the paid family um, leave being taken out of the infrastructure bill, we've got to keep fighting. We've got to keep this as a top priority. Um, we just published a piece um, on Forbes around the Pump Act, which is really kind of the first family protection mm -hmm. in the workplace in over 30 years since FMLA. And so, um, you know, I hope that perhaps this, this modest win can give way to paid family leave. We're yeah. also at um, a, a kind of a pending crisis around childcare investment because post-pandemic, yeah. those businesses operate on razor-thin margins. Yeah. And so these small childcare facilities, which are the primary um, caregiving resources for many parents across the U.S., have been propped up through federal funding. And that funding is about to go away, which is yep. going to have really dramatic impacts on, on working American families. So, you know, we'll keep fighting. We think a lot about, you know, the role that we can play in helping um, continue to elevate this as a mission critical initiative um, as part of kind of the, the election next yeah. year. And then, you know, so there are so many legs to this stool, right? So we need corporate policies, we need federal policies, but then there's also corporate culture. So it's one right. thing to have these policies and there's another to live it, right? And so, sure, you can take the 26 weeks, but what's really going to happen to you and your job when you come back? And I, there's someone close to me who the person who was covering for their leave, you know, they took the full leave because they thought they could and the person covering for them got promoted while they were out on leave. And so you are still getting penalized, right? In many ways, culturally, even though the policies are there and you're taking advantage of it. So what are you trying to get companies to do to make sure that the experience is living up to what the promise of paid leave is supposed to be? I love that you brought this up because like a policy alone does not achieve the outcome. Nope. Um, and we, we do a lot of research. As I mentioned, we've got work labs. Um, and time and time again, when we survey our community of what they're looking for in an ideal workplace, number one is flexibility and a very close second is respect. Because when respect doesn't follow these policies, it means nothing. And in fact, it can have a negative implication if that policy exists, but doesn't feel like it's supported and respected for people to take advantage of. And I think this one is harder, right? It's much easier to write a new policy than it is to change mindsets. And that's something that we see um, day in, day out, because a CEO could believe in this, you know, wholeheartedly and put together a really fantastic initiative around um, supporting caregivers, supporting women. But if those kind of middle managers fundamentally don't believe in their right. in an area of such impact. On, on that direct employee experience. So I would say my biggest um, way that I think we can continue to move the needle here is getting more women in leadership positions, Yes, right? Because they're leading through example. Um, I'll never forget a woman I met with very senior at Goldman Sachs. And she forced men that worked for her to take paid time off um, when they had um, children. New, new children. And I just thought that was really powerful. And um, like, like changing that culture, I think, and um, it happens one day, one conversation at a time. And the more 
women that we can have in these leadership roles who see the importance of this, the more men um, who come to the table with that empathy. Um, that's how change happens, but it's, right. it, it certainly takes time. And bringing the men in is so key. And I think that's the part of family leave policies that culturally we have not fully embraced. So a lot of companies have moved towards this gender neutral family leave, but there's a lot of side eye when men take it. Like, seriously, you're, isn't your wife going to be at home? What, you're taking this too? Like, you know, and I think men in particular don't feel supported in taking the leave that's being offered for them. I totally agree. And that's like a really hard problem to mm-hmm. solve. Um, but it's I so- love how the UK does it. I mean, there's so many examples of countries that do it different, but in the UK, you get family leave. And I think each, if you are in a two parent household, each parent gets six months. Mm -hmm. So as a household, you get a year, but the one parent takes six and the other parent takes six. And so they really encourage it from a governmental level. Like, sure, your family will get a parent at home for the first year of life, but you got to split it. It's so true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really incredible the way that they do it. And I'm so know what we call advocates who kind of lead by example. One of our um, investors, advisors, Alexis Ohanian, like really kind of leading from the front. And I think, you know, brands have an incredible ability to kind of change culture. And so we think about, you know, that the advisors that we have amongst our, our network and how do we just continue to show culturally, like it is cool for dads to take that time, right? Like I, I, I think it, yeah, it takes time, but it's, it's an exciting sort of challenge to, to tackle. I mean, they, the two of them are just a phenomenal role model. And I think Serena Williams is involved with you, right? She is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How did that come to be? What's, what's the partnership look like? Yeah. So, um, I was introduced to Serena and her team through Alexis. So at his prior fund initialized, they had led our series A. Um, and so Alexis had gotten really involved, like certainly, um, being married to such a strong woman, he really saw like the, the huge opportunity here, um, to help us change this narrative. Um, and so, you know, Serena and her team have been absolutely amazing and she embodies like our brand, our brand goals, um, and showing women in a really authentic way how motherhood and career coexist. So, um, you know, we're excited. We've got a, some things that we're working on and um, hope to get her more involved in the next next few months. Certainly they've got another child on the way. So I'm so excited for them, but they have been just really incredible partners to the mom project and can't think of a better kind of example of, you know, what, how things could be. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you've been an incredibly successful fundraiser. I mean, you have fantastic investors. You've done a really great job. I know that you've been guiding other entrepreneurs now. You said, you know, your brother-in-law and some other folks. What's the number one thing you learned in fundraising that you would love to pass on to entrepreneurs? Yeah, such a great question. Um, It changed so much, like from the seed stage to, you know, where we've been more recently at Series C, where you're dealing with more sort of growth equity investors. Um, mm-hmm. In the early days, it was really them believing in the founding team and the market opportunity. And I learned so much about how to really 
take my passion to present a compelling business argument. Because I think what I learned early on is that investors did not believe kind of the market size opportunity was here. Um, and they believed that, you know, we, we would only kind of be able to serve a sliver of total, the addressable market of, of moms. And maybe it would only be moms who had been out of the workforce for an extended period of time. And from day one, we knew that wasn't the case. We were, the brand was connecting with brand new moms who just needed another way to work all kinds of moms and the market was so much bigger than they were giving us credit for. Um, so I would say that was the key learn kind of from day one, um, that my vision and my passion for that could not be enough to like get an investor on board with what they needed to see in terms of strong financial returns. Um, so I think I learned to kind of, um, to kind of balance my passion with stronger business acumen. Um, I was not a finance person. And so I had to spend a lot of time really digging into the financials, being able to speak fluently to unit level economics, customer paybacks. Like that was a muscle that I did not have before that I really had to build to establish credibility. Um, and then I think later on, you know, as we went to raise our B and C, it comes down um, more to the revenue, right? And the growth and and um, investors kind of seeing where you've been able to take it from a growth perspective um, and then painting a really compelling picture that we can and will own this market, um, not yeah. only here in the U.S., but this is a problem that doesn't just exist in the U.S. And we have the opportunity to do this on a global scale. Um, so, you know, I think my advice to um, founders, like, are, like probably the biggest thing is like, you're never going to know anything. Just like I didn't know finance. Um, I still don't, you know, there's still so many areas like have good people in your corner who are experts on things that really matter. So have an invest in an amazing lawyer who can look through term sheet reviews for you. Like the terms you set, people get really fixated on valuation. Valuation is just one piece, liquidation preferences, um, you know, all these terms that, especially as a first time founder, like you need really strong legal counsel. Um, I think that like practically speaking, that is one of my biggest pieces of advice, because I think um, you don't it's hard for you to advocate for yourself. And you can, mm-hmm. and if you can put a little distance between yourself and your emotion and kind of the deal making that will make a tremendous difference. I think a lot of founders get really shell-shocked by good attorney bills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's part of what happens too. They're like, I can't, they feel like they just can't afford it. Um, but you're saying you can't afford not to have it. You really can't. I mean, and if you get somebody really good, they can do in a couple hours, you know, and yeah. so many people will just call kind of their lawyer that is in their network. But the thing about law that people don't appreciate is like, it's so specialized, right? Right. So um, I've just seen some entrepreneurs, you know, make some bad turns because they weren't getting proper legal advice. And I just, I, I just think that's so critical. Like it's a very, very technical piece of advice, but one that I've seen make the difference for us at the mom project and being able to put in strong protections for our employees and just, things like, because I had really good legal counsel along the way. Right. Such good advice. So of all the things you need to try to save money on as a founder, 
don't that is just something you know jeff bezos talks about one-way door you know like so many decisions can be reversed right in a term sheet in a deal structure those are irreversible like so uh, like it just yeah exactly for sure so I want to talk a little bit about where we're at with uh, women in the workforce post-COVID. You know, we all know that we lost about a million women, which is basically the population of Delaware. And I'm reading all these stats that, like, we're back. All the women are back. But I feel like in the folks I'm talking to, and anecdotally, that's not really true. But I think you know more than I do. So where are we at with the women who left the workforce in COVID, the roughly one million women? Are they all back in their jobs? What's going on? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think many of us who are living in this space, um, you know, sometimes we read those those monthly Friday job reports and it's just not sort of syncing with what we know no. to be true. And right. I, I would echo your sentiment um, of the millions of women that, that were forced out of the workforce during the pandemic. We have seen kind of in the BLS data steady returns with female labor participation rate returning to kind of pre-pandemic levels. Um, I'm not close enough to that data to know kind of what job categories are really driving that. But I would say specifically in the work that we focus on, which is professional, that is absolutely not the case. Um, And the return to in an in-office environment is having pretty devastating impacts for women. Um, and so there's less fully Because remote. of the childcare crisis too. It's like exactly. it all is compounding each really other. It's really compounded. Um, in fact, we just pulled a stat. We're seeing a large increase of jobs on our platform um, from employers who need somebody to be in an office, at least partially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that's resulting is the competition for fully remote jobs is going up at the mom project and, you know, more broadly. Yeah. So, you know, I still think that there's a lot of women um, who are waiting for the right opportunity to come. Um, I think, you know, we, we spend so much time speaking with women um, in our community and I think forever the pandemic has changed people's approach to work and life. And now if they've had the opportunity to spend more time at home with their children, while also seeing they can be really productive employees, their kind of desire or willingness to go into an office is not there. Yeah. Um, Right. I would say the beacon of like optimism is really around small businesses, Margaret, right? Because large corporations, they're, they're making these mandates, but again, it's still, depends a lot on who your manager is, but where we're seeing a lot of continued growth and remote work is from the small businesses who realize it's a huge competitive advantage for them. For sure. Right. Um, and I think what you're doing is so critical because, well, for many reasons, but given the structure of our economy and how we work, that employers are the primary provider of health insurance, right? All of these benefits, they are not provided by the government. The gig economy is not the promise, you know? So I think we thought when the gig economy really exploded and opened up about a decade ago, everyone thought, well, this was the answer. This isn't this amazing, flexible work. Do it in your own time. Use your own car. You know, you could be a task rabbit and this is going to be all amazing for like these moms and all these people that need more flexible work. But I always struggled with it because it's not so great. 
and you don't have any of the benefits that employers provide. And so what you're doing is so much more important because they need real jobs with benefits and resources that the gig economy just can't provide. Do you feel like you have competition from the gig economy? Did you at the beginning? Do you still? So it's such an interesting, so gig economy, exactly most people think task rabbit, sort of Uber, like shift work, which certainly, but there's a massive sort of gig economy that happens inside large companies through contingent work. And we've actually seen that be a good pathway in for our community into some of these large oper- larger companies. So we do a lot of, but, but it's like, it's, it's steady income flow. So think of these right. as like six month projects, you're joining Meta on a real high impact project. And that could convert into full-time employment or, you know, a much longer project. So I guess we do participate in the gig economy, but not as you would Right. Maybe perceive it as like very task. Right. Um, as a pathway. Shift. Um, and I think, you know, the space has evolved so much, certainly a lot of kind of policy um, discussion around 1099 and W2. Um, the reality is more of the workforce is shifting this way. Um, and so I think a lot about, okay, well, if people have kind of this, association that employment is tied like benefits there's actually a lot of great free market solutions that people can get health care and i think people think that it's really intimidating um and but when we kind of say you want to work this way here's some solutions that will be healthcare solutions dental vision all of that it's quite approachable um and, and there can be a good stream of income there. So I think it really depends on, you know, somebody's prioritization and what they're solving for. But I think I think about gig economy as being certainly a growth engine of jobs in the future. So what it sort of lacks today, how do we help educate right. people on potential solutions to offset those? Right. Um, are they able to get any health insurance or benefits or anything through the MOM project? Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the temp work that we do um, is actually W-2. Yeah, Um, see, so that's what's so amazing. You're providing this solution. Yes, absolutely. And so that that does have that. um, And that's not always the case. For some small business owners, they are hiring 1099. Um, So it really just depends. And you have to know, like, what's what's most important in your decision matrix. But I think we see that as a rising tide. How do we make it? How do we make those conditions better? And a big part of our ethos is advocating for great worker experiences for contingent labor or for contingent workers who we know there's been this disparity. Yep. So you've experienced tremendous growth. I know things keep evolving as the company grows. What's going to be the most different for the mom project in the next year, five years? Yeah. So Margaret, um, about a little over two years ago, I'd set a a goal for us um, to unlock um, a billion dollars in economic opportunity for our community through jobs and rise. We're we're kind of rounding in at that that goal. And so um, I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on what comes next for us. And I'm really excited to grow the portfolio um, of offerings to help um, provide more support 
in more fulsome ways to the incredible women on our platform. Um, so expect to see, you know, some new bets, new product innovation, um, us going deeper with existing customers, continuing to launch in new markets, um, and really getting our brand out there. I think you'll see more boldness. Um, we've got the proof points and we're excited mm -hmm. to really just continue to evangelize why moms get shit done. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything you can give us a sneak peek into, or is it all super secret? Um, one of the, I will share just like one of the trends I'm really bullish on is we're seeing moms really leading small business growth in the mm -hmm. U.S. And so we're working on something I believe is really exciting to help her in that pursuit. Um, yeah. So just looking at income opportunity for moms really agnostically, you know, some moms want to join a company. Yeah. Um, some want to start their own company. And I think, you know, we should have a solution for every mom to kind of meet her where she is on that journey. Yes, absolutely. So something we love to do is this lightning round at the end. Um, okay. A, you know, maybe 10 or 12 questions that we ask really quick. I love it. Okay. I love it. We'll go really fast. Don't overthink it. Morning person or night owl? Night owl. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Sweet or salty? Salty. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Last show you binge watched and loved? Ted Lasso. Favorite emoji? Mmm, rocket ship. Favorite smell? Pepper. An app on your phone you can't live without? Probably my Google Calendar, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> Best life hack? Kids. First thing you like to do in the morning? Coffee. <laughs> the book you recommend the most? Mm. Your professional mantra. I've got it right next to me. Work hard and be nice. Mm. The biggest thing you learned about yourself during COVID. How I much I miss people. Mm -hmm. And if you could say something to yourself when you were about to have your first child, what would you say? Hold on. Like... This, the, you'll never get these moments back. It's really beautiful. For sure. Allison, this was so fun. It went oh. way too fast. I wish we could talk more. There's so much to get into, but um, maybe we'll have to have you back Thank again you. and have a second half of the conversation. And Margaret, you do so much to advocate Elevate Women every day. So thank you. Thank you for all the incredible work that you do. You are, you're amazing. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.